This episode of the podcast is with Paul Colbeck. I'm sure if you're on Twitter that you've seen the research Paul has been producing. And if not, you need to go and check it out. It comes at a great time as we were able to discuss how Usain Bolt has adapted to life as a pro player, as well as how Paul's research should inform practice. Enjoy the episode and share with any friends or colleagues who you think may benefit. Here's the episode with Paul. Hi guys, welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode four. I'm really pleased today that we've got Paul Colbeck joining us. and We've seen a lot of the work and the research that Paul's been doing over on Twitter. And he was, when we set the podcast up, he was someone that we really wanted to get on. So thanks for joining us today, Paul. Yeah, my pleasure, Ben. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, and we've got some discussion lined up on, on, like I said, the research that Paul's been putting out. Um, we've also had a few questions sent in from a few people that have mentioned that you were coming on the podcast as well. So it seems like um, the guys are really interested in what you've got to say. So I really appreciate you coming on today. So just to kick us off, Paul, give us a little bit of um, background um, about how you got into what, you, what you're into at the moment and then also what your day-to-day looks like so you couldn't roll. Yeah, of course. So um, starting from the beginning, um, as I left college, I went to do civil engineering at university. I uh, wasn't really aware of, you know, like the sports science industry, strength and conditioning, but was always keen to be in the gym and lifting and obviously had a sport background myself. Um, during my second year, I just started reading a lot. I sort of coming across people like Alwyn Cosgrove and Eric Cressy and sort of realized there was a, a real industry out there and actual strength and conditioning actually existed, you know, really. Um, so I thought, I've got to do this now if I want to do it. So I changed over to a sports science degree, went for a strength and conditioning master's, got myself in a few internships, started doing bits with Leicester Tigers, uh, interning with Derby County. Then got my first job at Coventry City, working with their academy, fantastic place to work, um, and then progressed over to West Brom, where I spent a decent amount of time. Um, after a couple of years, after my master's, started speaking to... Um, Matthew Green who was working at West Brom at the time and he just started on the professional doctorate program at John Moores with Barry Drust um, so yeah just got myself registered on that was working through West Brom did the last couple of years finished over in the summer um, and then now I'm just working for myself training a few athletes a few general pop while I just get this uh, big piece of work written up and ready to go Awesome awesome so it, it sounds like it wasn't the thing you set out to do initially, but then obviously it, it turned your attention over to, to sports science and S&C eventually. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, like I was always the sporty guy at school and it was always like, oh, what, what are you going to do after school? You, is it PE teaching? Is it personal training? Like fitness coaches in them days, I think were kind of, you know, ex-pros who would just be part of the coaching staff and there wasn't really a, an exact route into being a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach. It was still quite developing. Um, and then, yeah, once I sort of got that knowledge and realized it was something that, you know, we could make a career out of and uh, there was jobs available, I was, yeah, fully focused and straight onto that. Yeah. And how did you find your, um, your time? Obviously you're still involved in football in terms of the research, but in, in, at the clubs. So you said about being a, an intern initially, how did you find that? Yeah, I mean, it was great. I had a great, great mentors along the way, really. So, um, my first internships, I started with rugby for my final year of my undergrad, working with Dave Cripps, who he presented recently at the UKSEA and things like that. He's, he's a really knowledgeable guy, really opened up my eyes to a lot of different ways of working. 
and just being in and around the guys at Tigers. Um, and then again, uh, Steve Haynes, when I went to Derby full-time, taught me a lot. He spent a good few years at Derby, really knowledgeable guy in football. Um, and then progressed to the time at West Brom, working you know, mainly alongside someone like Nick Grantham, which was just an incredible experience as somebody who's been in it right from the start of strength and conditioning. Um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it's a baptism of fire working in football. You know, you turn up, you get there at eight o'clock in the morning and then for three, four hours until the end of training, um, it's just on the go and just reacting and dealing with situations. And it's really is a test what you've learned at university, but you'd sort of learn that side of applying what you've learned and the cultural aspect and speaking on a level with players and trying to, you know, convince them to get in the gym a lot in football. Um, so yeah, it was a great experience and really developed me as a practitioner in my time in football. Um, and what I'm doing now, working with general population a lot as well, and athletes outside of their their sports teams, it's a completely different angle again. And um, I, I really just enjoying coaching, and I guess that's why we all sort of do the job we do is just to be in and around with the athletes. What was it always an intention to end up in football, Paul? Yeah, I think so. I was a footballer myself. That was my main sport. Um, track and field and football were my two sports. Um, obviously, why I've combined it for my doctorate. Um, but yeah, football was the main, the main goal was to sort of get to being the top guy at a sports science department in the Premier League, I guess, was, was my goal when I changed over to a sports science degree, um, kind of fulfilled that a lot last season and the few seasons before that. Um, but yeah, it was always football was, was the focus. Yeah. Awesome. So I mentioned at the start about the, the research you've been putting out and, uh, I'm sure a lot of the guys that are listening have seen a lot of it, but if they uh, contextual sprinting is that fair to say yeah yeah exactly yeah contextual sprinting is probably the title yeah it was a a long path to sort of get to what I wanted to do um, for my thesis um, it started initially on some training methods and thinking about going along down that line um, but managed to get onto the contextual sprinting side from conversation I had with people like Jonas Dodu and uh, JB Marin we, we put on a few conferences at West Brom two or three years ago um focused on speed and yeah sort of the the project was kind of born out of a lot of conversations i had around that time yeah and how do you see so the data you're collecting and the research that, that's developing from what you're doing how do you see that influencing future training or how do you want it to influence future training yes the way i see it like i said when when i first sort of was banning around ideas for the project i was looking at different training methods i was looking at things like velocity based training and other stuff i was doing in my work in practice um but the more i sort of read around those areas it was kind of a thought process of you know why do we do these training methods um and we're ultimately trying to have an impact on the pitch or keeping guys away from the physio department you know so i was sort of thinking our main goal as practitioners is to make players faster and more agile on a pitch that's probably what we put it down to as a broad objective um so if we reverse engineer that process, I guess the first thing on there is what do they actually do? And we've got this sort of, at the moment, these, this one-dimensional data of GPS distances. You know, we know we know frequencies of how often we sprint during a game, the differences between positions, how long those sprints are and things like that, the speeds and percentages that they achieve. But we don't really know the specific skills that go alongside that. Um, and people like Ian Jeffries have sort of put together, you know, broad overviews of these movement uh, patterns during team sports and field sports. Um, so I guess the starting point was just to kind of try and quantify those things and put numbers on what do we actually do? You know, how, do we just 
sprint from zero meters per second up to max velocity in a straight line, you know, whilst not paying attention to anything that goes in the game. Um, so I really wanted to put these position profiles together as my initial start point, which is what I sort of released on Twitter a few weeks ago is just an example. I think it was the center, center back position. Um, so ultimately just to inform performance-based programs, uh, what do we do in training? You know, should this position be doing something different to this position? And then I guess from rehabilitation as well, if we're bringing a guy back to training the matches, you know, they should have been able to do comfortably what they're going to be required to do during a match. And do you see that as being carried out in, in like isolation or are you trying to get that within sessions? Yeah, so conversations I had with uh, Jonas Dodu, who's been doing a lot in, in football and rugby recently after, as an aside to his uh, track and field work, um, he's mentions a lot of Bondachuk's classification of exercises. So we have the competition exercise, which I guess is what I'm trying to quantify. You know, we do a lot of sprints uh, initiating laterally in football and our torso rotating and things like that. So it's important that we identify that exact skill, which is our competition exercise that we're trying to improve. And then again, I guess we just reverse engineer back from there. So our initial point would be real, um, highly contextual and specific actions. So small sided games and things like that, which is, this stuff needs to be quantified, but do we do a lot of these actions in small-sided games and basic football drills that the coaches would lead anyway? Um, so that would be our initial most highly transferable um, practice. Scale that back a bit more. It can affect our gym, uh, gym-based gym interventions. So we can be doing different types of exercises in the gym that are a bit more specific to what we do on the pitch. We might put um, sessions on in the warm-up that would focus on specific aspects through the week. They would be obviously periodized through the season. You know, we might do some closed drills and some open drills. We might progress and regress slightly the perceptual element of that. So I think it's it's a vertical integration. It comes on all the way through the the contact that we have with the players. And um, again, it's something that Jonas really stressed is, you know, letting the players know that our focus is to make them faster and more agile on the pitch, which which would help, you know, when we're trying to convince a player to squat in the gym. It's kind of quite detached from what they're going to do on the field. We know that it's going to make them more robust, probably uh, quicker and more agile on the pitch if they're stronger but it's hard for a player to sometimes see that but if we can link all of these interventions together you know we do this on the pitch and we do this on the gym and it all kind of seamlessly integrates and it's a focus on becoming faster and more agile it's going to help me break away from my marker it's going to help me track an overlap as my fullback comes around the side and little things like that so I think little bits little hits often through the day through the week is definitely the way to go and it can certainly be incorporated into different um modalities of drills and whether that's the football based or or more of a sports scientist leading i think one big um area of interest like personally for me from what i've seen that you put out for is how you would um adapt the gym work so is that something that you've managed to um carry out with players how how have you amended like the programs that you've been carrying out from the research yeah, so last season I really tried to sort of look into this again through our conferences that we put on at West Brom. We had uh, Franz Bosch came over and John Kiley. We had both of them in for a day or so each and just having discussions with them of figuring out the best way that we could integrate this. They're both like obviously really high-level practitioners who have done this with track and field guys and in different uh, sports teams. Um, so the way I started putting it together last year was really simply, so we would do say a trap or deadlift or a squat just a heavy bilateral knee dominant exercise and i might pair that with something like um franz's single leg rdl swing throughs onto a box 
and, and then might progress that to add in a little torso rotation at the finish. Um, so you, you might put in them dynamic step-ups with torso rotations. So I'll do sort of the, the main lift of the exercise that I'm really trying to get the robust and the force production uh, adaptations from. And I'd probably pair that with something that, you know, a bit more funky, a bit more sports-specific that got the players buying because they, they quite like that sort of stuff. They can see a lot of that carry over to the pitch. Um, and then it would teach them to sort of express that force in different positions. And I think that um, dissociation between the upper body and the lower body is, is a really big, big important factor. Franz identified after watching some of the footage of um, the players we were working with during matches that that was something that a lot of players can struggle with really. He showed me a really good example of a, a striker who actually, he did actually score, but he received the ball, his back to goal um, and then spun around with the ball. But he, at no point did his upper body separate from his lower body. He just kind of like, it was like watching a lorry turn. It was just really sort of slow and lumbered. And, um, and it just really emphasized to me that that is, you know, being able to produce force and move fast in those different positions is really important. And Franz has a lot of uh, videos out of his work with rugby. And I know John Pryor put some stuff out on Twitter. Um, just So you're just doing general sprint drills, but you can be just focusing and twisting and moving that torso side to side for different actions. Um, they'll do it, obviously, catching a rugby ball and throwing a pass um, and little things like that. Yeah, so it definitely has started to creep into my programming, but um, barely scraps the surface, really. I think it's definitely a burgeoning area, and hopefully my research and future research could sort of look into the most efficient and the best ways of incorporating that into, into training sessions, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's one one thing I was going to ask you was about the buy-in for the players because I think when they can see the positions and you can start talking really specifically about the positions, they're going to be um, a lot more receptive to that, aren't they? Rather than some things you might do away from the pitch and in the gym, they'll sort of be thinking, "Well, well why am I doing this?" Like, whereas um, you know, like you say, the positions they're hitting, you can talk really specifically into positions and and where they'd be on the pitch and and the body positions they'd be in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we kind of, we go through academia, we go through our undergrad and our master's and we we as strength and conditioning coaches are kind of like, yeah, okay, I, I want them to squat, but we kind of forget the reason that we we want them to squat. We'll think, I want them to do this exercise rather than, okay, I want to globally increase force production of the, the lower body. If we just think about it from a reverse engineering perspective of what is the end skill point and then work back in terms of like specificity to more general um, exercises and drills and then we can just really try and link that through and vertically integrate all those components through the week so last season I was working a lot with one of our strikers so we would again as an example we would do something like an RDL a bilateral hip movement but we would do a lateral hop into a broad jump and stuff like that and it was kind of just trying to teach him um, explosing off that lateral side and I was sort of use examples of from my own research strikers a lot of the times we'll be moving diagonally across the back four and then they will just suddenly explode off a cutting action onto sort of a curved run in behind the defence to get onto a ball. Um, they will be performing that with torso rotation. So again, every time I will just keep reiterating that this is what we're trying to train. You know, every time that you do this movement in a match, which hopefully if we do it well can lead to a goal, that's what we're trying to get in the gym. But I'm still sliding in my more general exercises alongside that that, that me as an SSC coach knows the the validity of you know yeah no, that sounds really good so back onto like the the speed work how um what other concept contextual factors have you found that affect the execution of high speed running or sprinting 
Yeah. So I think at the moment I've really um, categorized these movements and I've used Ian Jeffrey's movement classification, which is uh, it's widely available in um, a few journal articles he's put out in his game speed, speed book. Um, so now I'm trying to get onto sort of why do those factors occur, um, which I think uh, Paul Bradley has touched upon in some of his research um, and the actual tactical context of the match. Um, so I guess some of the key positions and key points of notes really are that, that we very rarely sprint from a static position. So a lot of times as a practitioner, as a fitness coach, we might do sprints at the end of a warm-up, but they're always from, from zero meters per second, and then we just sprint as hard as we can. Um, whereas the vast majority of sprints during football, we're already carrying some sort of velocity into that sprint. Um, and then we might take that off a court onto a curved run and things like that. So I think a lot of what these movement outcomes are and that I've been trying to quantify are direct, um, co- uh, directly caused by just being able to provide yourself options on the field. So I think people like Mo Salah, this is what they do really well. People like Lionel Messi, you watch them and you can't quite, you don't know what they've done, but they've provided themselves options in some way where they can manipulate their velocity, their position on the field subtly to allow them to either arrive on the end of a cross or to just create that little bit yard of space in the box. Um, so it's really, it's the intangible stuff that, that causes that. But I guess that's where the research needs to go is to really dial into sort of what is most efficient and what's the best to do that on a football field, you know? So I put out some pictures recently again of a uh, Usain Bolt. Um, and there's a nice little uh, video on these highlights playing for uh, Australian football teams. I think it's Central Coast Mariners. Um, where he arrives with plenty of time on the edge of the 18-yard box and the, the winger on the right-hand side puts a cross in uh, towards the back post and bolts basically on marks, but he doesn't make it to the end of the cross. And it's like, yeah. he's clearly got the capacity to get there. We know he can run 18 yards fairly quickly. Um, <laughs> but he just doesn't allow himself the options as he approaches the play. He's kind of almost got the blinkers on and he just, I think he decelerates a little bit too harsh and then tries to reaccelerate and gets caught out by the flight of the ball. Whereas I tried to compare that to um, Son at Tottenham, who did exactly the same in one match. But he just, whatever he does, and I'm not sure what it is yet, but he just allows himself the options to manipulate his velocity. It's different to track sprinting where we just, we're not really thinking and we just go as hard and fast as we can. Um, so I think it's just little subtle movements like that that, that really are define what we do in football, yeah. I think that... that it, it, at the moment isn't it with him playing um, and getting the opportunity to play because like you say we can it'd have all been ifs and buts if he wouldn't have got a move to any club but now he can really get stuck into performance and and obviously he's the quickest ever isn't he so for someone like you it's great to, to look at what they do and what other players do and why they're more effective than him yeah I mean exactly it's, it's come at a perfect time really and I'm, I'm keeping close eyes on it I've got Lots of screenshots, lots of videos saved and just different examples. And I was watching some this morning, just trying to figure out what he does differently to somebody who's, you know, trained as a football sprinter. Someone like Mo Salah, who's a perfect example. Um, yeah, and it's, ju- it's just really interesting to see. Um, and it's quite exciting, really. So hopefully it does get a few more games. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, what do you see as being uh, limiting factors when training speedball? Um, yeah, so I mean, if we look at it broadly from the track perspective, you know, it's it's fairly simple, you know, for us working in football where we don't have to go to the highest level of detail. But 
if we want to accelerate fast, we need to apply force horizontally, like a lot of force horizontally in the correct direction. Um, when we're running at top speed, you know, it's, it's about vertical application of force and just being nice and stiff as we hit the floor. Um, I mean, they're the basics of it really um, in football. And then obviously we have the extra skill elements of producing them force in slightly different patterns during a, f- a football match. Um, but yeah, so that's, you know, resisted sprints and things like that are great as a, as a real specific strength exercise. And then for the top speed, wicked drills, just little small hurdle drills where we're just trying to teach stiffness in the correct postures. Um, and it's not contextual sprinting isn't about saying that you know track type sprinting is irrelevant to to a footballer. It's still the fundamentals are still the same. Um, I, I dare to use the word like attractors as Franz Bosch would because I don't claim to be anywhere near as knowledgeable about him. But the positions are still the same. We need to get high knee lift. We need to be front side dominant. Um, we need to be nice and tall as we're running quick. We have a good lean and we um, get the knees through like a piston action on an acceleration. So the fundamentals are still the same um, and the limiting factors are still exactly the same as on track. But during football, they're just, yeah, they're so different that it um, really does need its own sort of um, specific training program, yeah. And for a, for a coach at a club, like what, what would you recommend in terms of like percentage on time spent working on something like the fundamentals and then how would you, what advice would you give on um, integrating the football side of it and and the more contextual sprinting side of it into the, into the practice. Yeah. So I guess the point that we need, which is probably where I'm hoping to sort of finish with my thesis. Um, we need to know sort of what small sided games give us really. Obviously positions are slightly different if we're doing six V six or something like that. Nine V nine on a big pitch. Are we still getting, are we replicating the movements that are important in a game during um, you know, small side of games type work. Are we actually getting that? Um, but even then, I don't think if we do quite get the same sort of skills, I don't think we're going to get the quantity. So we have to be implementing that ourselves at some point. Um, so it's easily done. You know, you do your gym session before training or after training. We, we get these specific sort of a uh, force production exercises in there. We can integrate it easily into the warm up. We can be doing hip turn drills. We can be doing the transition movements into sprints and things like that in the warm up. Um, and then in between sort of drills, we can, as practitioners, we can be designing drills with the sports coaches, um, you know, a little crossing and finishing drills. We can just be making sure that, that they marry up with what we want as, um, the performance staff. Um, yeah. And then again, just in between drills, fitness conditioning drills. Um, if we're doing box to box runs, can we try and make, you know, them a little bit more specific, which is, you know, fairly easily done. Can we put it onto a curve? Can we initiate this uh, high-speed running from different positions? Can we maybe make their little bit of the torso change of directions in there as we go along the uh, conditioning? So I think it can really factor into every single thing we do. I mean, football is movement, right? And if we want to do it efficiently and effectively, I think you know we as performance coaches are probably the best place to to influence that. One, one topic that's got um, really popular in the podcast that we've done, but also that we run is is about relationships and relationships with coaches as well so what's your experience with that in terms of just spoke then about obviously manipulating drills and speaking to I'm guessing the technical coaches on how you can sort of manipulate to get more um more I suppose the, the physical attribute that you want to train as well oh found that are they receptive to it have you had to 
work on building a relationship first before the coach allows a stamp on the drill or how, how have you found um, or what are your best tips for building relationships? Yeah, so I think the key thing you said there is, you know, it takes time and trust. It's the same as any relationship, really. Um, a manager will have his own ideas of what he wants to do, and then we just try. To, we have to work within those confinements, you know, that, and that's the way it should be. They have the ultimate say. It's their, it's their neck on the line. Um, but I think, yeah, most clubs in the morning would have a discussion between some sort of performance or fitness staff member um, to what the day's plan is from a training perspective. And I think it's just building up over time, trying to focus those days you know, are we four days before a game? Do we want to do some more acceleration work and more intensive day? Are we a bit closer to a game? Should we try and avoid too much eccentric load in our drills? And if a manager has an outline of what he wants to do for a week, then that, that can easily be done. We just, you know, we maybe try to manipulate what days they come on and we can try and title the day as a speed day, as a um, change of direction day and things like that. So I think I think it's just something over time that's trust and um if you can get results, then that's definitely the best way to build that trust. I think we are thinking about a reverse engineering. Um, if we've got a striker on a pitch and we can show a manager clearly, oh, that's, you know, he did that cut really well there and he got to the ball. Um, and that's, you know, that's why we've been doing this sort of drill and this sort of work. Then obviously that's uh, definitely the way to, to get them on side. And just going back to the, the way you spoke background and then your involvement in football, what, what advice would you give to the young coaches who's coming out of university or even still at university for getting into um, what you currently do or what you have done with clubs? Yeah, definitely. So this is, you know, I had this discussion with a lot of people at UKSA. We kind of, I was exactly the same. I went to university. I was like, I want to be, you know, I want to be SNC at Manchester United or Arsenal or something like that. Um, but there's only a limited amount of jobs, you know, and we can't all all be doing those positions and I think there is such a wide market out there for us working with general population athletes which I'm really enjoying doing as part of my practice at the moment um there's the guys in Sheffield who are doing a lot of work with strength and conditioning for the elderly and things like that um obviously there's a multitude of different sports and different levels that we can be working in so I think he's just giving yourself options and just doing as much of everything as you can so you know, you should really, I didn't, but you should really be PT in for a university degree. You should be getting experience of just coaching. You know, it's going to make you a better coach, working in different sports, being open to, you know, universities do a lot of strength and conditioning, sports science practice at the moment. Um, there's loads of jobs coming out there. We, we, you know, we're not all going to work in football and there's definitely easier ways to earn your money than, than being in the sports scientist at a Premier League club. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard slug um, and there's definitely ways that you can do that outside of that. Um, as you know as a, as a personal trainer working in different sports working for multiple organisations at a time you know um, one of my main mentors Nick Grantham speaks really well um, he's written a book um, on getting a job in the strength and conditioning industry you know and he works with different people at, uh, at the same time you know works with lots of different athletes he does consultancy work and I think there's just more options than we think of out there and you've just got to sort of get out there and, and make them work for yourself I think, uh, I don't know if you listened to his podcast recently with Rob Pacey as well. That was uh, a great insight for any young coaches. Nick went into loads of like invaluable stuff for coaches, well, of all levels as well, not just young coaches. Did, did you did you listen to that, Paul? Yeah, yeah, I got that. Yeah, so if you was if I was going to conclude that last question, it would be listen to that podcast and, and read Nick's book. <laughs> I think it's called Your Mind. I think, you know, all the answers are in there and, and Nick, 
Nick doesn't skirt around the matter at all, you know, and, he, and nobody knows the industry as well as Nick does. He's been in it, you know, right from the off. So, yeah, that, that would be my, my two punchlines, really, yeah. What, listen to the podcast and read his book. Awesome. Awesome. I'll put, um, I'll put a link in the notes as well so the guys can find that. Um, just finally, where if, if guys got any questions about anything, where's the best place to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I guess my Twitter's my Twitter's probably the easiest place. I guess you can drop a link to that. Um, it's just my surname yeah. with eighty nine, um, and then we can easily get in touch with there, and we can we can meet up or speak over email. Yeah, amazing. Well, Paul, really appreciate your time. I know you're really busy, so I appreciate you taking the time chatting to us. And I'm sure the guys have got loads of great information out of that. So uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, I appreciate you asking me on. Um, hopefully, people. Have found something out of it and like you say if they want to know any more the research is still still ongoing really so just feel free to get in touch and i've got a lot more than i've kind of released as of yet so i'm more than willing to discuss things with people here great stuff if you're not following paul already you need to be especially if you're involved in football he's putting some top stuff out no thanks again mate yeah my pleasure man thank you cheers Paul. A big thank you to Paul for coming on the show. It was great to finally chat to him about his research and what he's currently up to. If you don't already, go and follow him. He's on Twitter at Colbeck, which is C-A-L-D-B-E-C-K, and then um, 89. He puts out loads of great research um, and loads of great information on there, so go go and give him a follow. Also, I'm going to um, put the link for the Pacey Performance podcast that we mentioned in the show with Nick Grantham. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. You can go and check that out. That is a really, really good episode for anyone involved in not just football, but anyone involved in sport in general on uh, how coaches should um, basically, it's how they should think and how they should um behave on a day-to-day basis so that's a really really good episode from Pacey and Nick we are just over a week away from our Brighton Network meeting which is going to be on the 23rd Friday the 23rd of November this meeting is booked up all the tickets have gone we're going to be having Will Abbott and Josh Hook from Brighton presenting Um, but the good news is we've just had confirmation of our next meeting which is going to be next year so 2019 it's going to be in February we will be releasing all the details on this very very soon and putting the tickets out so just keep an eye on all of our social media it will go out on all of it as soon as we we've got all the details finalized so go and give us a follow at football fit fed on both twitter and instagram um, our email is mail at footballfitfed.com and the website is footballfitfed.com Thanks again for listening to the show. We're getting into the routine of it now. We're getting into the rhythm of these podcasts, so hopefully we'll keep more and more coming. We have had a few technical issues on this one, but hopefully you didn't notice until me telling you now. Um, And we will be bringing you and speaking to you next week with the next show. Thanks a lot.